I'm Olga Stella, the Executive Director of Design Corps Detroit and the Vice President for Strategy and Communications at the College for Creative Studies. Thank you for joining us for Season 3 of the Detroit City of Design podcast. As stewards of Detroit's UNESCO City of Design designation, we aim to raise your awareness of how design can create conditions for better quality of life and economic opportunity for all. In Season 3, we will hear from thought leaders who view our world through a lens of empathy, and apply design thinking to address some of our world's most pressing issues. Today, I'm going to be speaking with Dessa Cosma, Executive Director of Detroit Disability Power, Jeanette Lee, Executive Director of Allied Media Projects, and Sandra Little, Principal and Director of Diversity and Inclusion at Quinn Evan Architects, on what it means to make a place truly accessible using the Love Building in Detroit as an example. The Love Building will serve as the home of a diverse group of Detroit nonprofit organizations interested in activating the building's potential as a force for justice, transformation, healing, and liberation. In today's podcast, you'll learn how our guests are driving true accessibility beyond ADA regulations thanks to a collaborative design process. This project is one of several case studies featured in Design Corps' Design Guide for Real Estate Development, the second in a series of guides to help decision makers better understand how designers can support their organizational outcomes. Thanks to the input of over 100 stakeholders, the guide helps real estate and community developers understand the value designers bring to each phase of the real estate development project through definitions, examples, practical worksheets, case studies, and more. This episode was originally filmed at True North and aired at the Edra 52 conference in the Just Places track on May 21st, 2021. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really happy to be talking to you all. Thank you. Well, I thought maybe we'd start with, with Jeanette and talk a little bit about the transition that Allied Media Projects made from uh, nonprofit to developer. So maybe tell us a little bit about your organization and how you came to work on the Love Building. As Olga mentioned, I am Jeanette Lee, co-executive director of Allied Media Projects. And uh, we are a 21-year-old now uh, organization that started out um, really as a conference of independent media makers in the late 90s, people who were invested in sharing the tools of just telling our own stories. And we've really grown and evolved since then to be a network of several hundred uh, media makers, technologists, artists, educators, designers in Detroit and across the country and globe increasingly who are all using media for social justice. We've been based in Detroit since 2006. (laughs) Prior to that, the organization actually started in Bowling Green, Ohio. And since moving to Detroit, uh, we have really bounced around um, and been displaced from different buildings, different neighborhoods in the city. We, we primarily would, you know, um, make home in different kind of warehouse artist loft type spaces. So the 555 Gallery and the Burton School and um, different places uh, around the city. And we kind of landed in the furniture factory in the Cass Corridor uh, and were there for about eight, nine, ten years. What year is it? <laughs> 2021, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a long time. Long time. <laughs> Anyways, um, we were re- really uh, pushing against the limits of that space. And uh, our organization has seen a lot of growth in especially the past uh, five years. And we started looking for a new home that would be more permanent, that could contain growth over the long term. 
and we had a really hard time. We actually wanted to stay in our building, tried to purchase that. The owner wanted three times as much as we could afford. Looked at other buildings in the Cass Corridor, Midtown area, which had seen a lot of investment from philanthropy to kind of, you know, drive development there. But uh, so it was increasingly unaffordable at the same time as philanthropy wasn't really investing anymore in helping make it uh, affordable for nonprofits and artists, et cetera. So um, that's when we started looking elsewhere and made several offers on places um, that we thought could be a good home for us, but we were beat out repeatedly by cash. So this was in 2017, 2018, the real estate market in Detroit was seeing investors from California or other places show up with like literally a million dollars in cash and buy buildings. And so we were increasingly uh, dis just discouraged and, and, and then we learned that the owners of 4731 Grand River right behind us here, we're looking to sell. And we were able to make an offer that was accepted, really, I think, because it hadn't been listed. Mm -hmm. It was the only reason we were successful there. So when we were actually successful in purchasing that building, it felt very <clears throat> lucky. And we set about figuring out what to do with all of this additional space. So we needed about 6,000 square feet is what we we're estimating for our own offices. And the building was around 27,000. Mm -hmm. So. Around that same time, you know, I was hearing from close partners of ours, other nonprofits, community organizers uh, who were working in the kind of midtown, downtown core about just the lack of affordable and accessible and uh, spaces that meet the needs of our organizations uh, in all, all the different ways those needs look. And so uh, that was sort of the genesis of how this building could be more than just Amp's home, but a multi-tenant space that was really about a synergy of organizations with aligned missions and visions. And how did the name Love come to be? Was that something that came out of the process? It came out of, you know, a waiting in line for the bathroom at a party. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you know, where Dessa and I and Amanda Alexander from the Detroit Justice Center were... Um, had just crossed pads and they were both talking about you know needing office space and I mentioned that we were trying to buy this building the one that has the big love mural on mm -hmm. it which spells love in misspelled American Sign Language but <laughs> it uh you know and so that at that point we were like well maybe we could all move in there and then we could call it the love building <laughs> Well, that's a great segue for Dessa to introduce herself and talk a little bit about your role in the project. Sure. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm Dessa. I'm the director of Detroit Disability Power. We organize people with disabilities and our allies to build the political power of the disability community here in Detroit and Metro Detroit and Michigan. And uh, it's true. It did. This conversation did start for me um, with Jenny and Amanda in line to the bathroom at a party. And <laughs> it was actually a women's party. And so it was, you know, 50 really badass Detroit women who get together every year. And as we were sitting there talking about, you know, what we were working on and our dreams to, you know, change the world, of course, we were kind of kvetching about the lack of accessible, affordable places to work. And I had just started Detroit Disability Power at that time. And finding an accessible 
uh, office space was almost impossible. Mm -hmm. There are so few places in Detroit that are truly accessible. Mm -hmm. And that is uh, a really fond memory that I have of us, like not only talking about the problem, but coming up with these dreams for something really awesome that are now coming to fruition several years later. And that's really exciting. And of course, because it's rehabbing a building, the building itself was not particularly accessible to begin with. And by having Detroit Disability Power as like a founding tenant partner in the project, I think we do bring a perspective and an expertise to the process that is valuable. Mm -hmm. And I think pretty quickly it was, I mean, I'm not surprised because I've known Jeanette for years, but there was this idea of like, let's make this the most accessible building in Detroit. That's going to be part of the goal here. And that's going to be part of the thing we brag about when we talk about this redevelopment and this community hub that we're trying to create together. And so uh, we've been a part of the process since that point and have been really happy to be partners in it, not just because we, you know, feel very listened to uh, and, and like, participants in the process, but because we're learning so much ourselves too. And that's been really cool. Well, I know I want to, we want to dig into the project a little bit, but before we do that, have Sandra introduce herself and maybe tell us a little bit about how, you know, you are a well-known architect in Detroit, worked on many projects. How has this project been, is either similar or different to other ones that you've worked on? Yes, definitely, definitely different, powerful. Uh, <laughs> yes, I'm Sandra Little, uh, architect, principal at Quinn Evans Architects, also director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at Quinn Evans Architects. Uh, it's hard to believe uh, we were just talking about it, Jeanette and Dessa and, uh, and I, it's been three years that we've been, since we first started this. But it is, it's very different uh, just to have the advocacy part be important to the developer, the development team, and the tenants uh, is is definitely change. You know, uh, design changing. You know, it's just mm-hmm. uh, it's something that uh, has pushed uh, beyond the standard Michigan building code requirements, ADA requirements, and like let's look at this to make it, you know, accessible, universal to design. Uh, even thinking of things like deaf space uh, guidelines and how to how to implement that in the project. And, and the typical developer does not think that way. Mm-hmm. So it's been really powerful just to listen and, and to learn. I learned so much from, from Dessa and seeing her, all the things she's doing throughout the city and uh, advocating uh, with the city for uh, disability uh, you know, rights. Uh, and, it's a, and it's had a great effect on the project. Uh, like I said, we were talking like number of things. The, you know, most developers are just trying to like say code minimum Bare, you know, bare dollar amount. But when we were talking about things like, like let's level out the first floor mm-hmm. and make it accessible from all sides, because it was a three and a half, like a three, three and a half inch, that three and a half foot difference between the front entrance of the building and the rear of the building. Wow. So like now the the building is accessible and from all entryways. So that it's you know you just don't see the typical developer doing things like that. Right. And so maybe we can talk a little bit about what the process looked like. So, you know, to, to get to that, to get to a, to a spot where the developer is saying, no, we're going to spend the money to, to even out a three-foot difference because it's so critical to the values of this project, to what we're trying to achieve. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if maybe Jenny can start a little bit and then Dessa and, and Sandra can help uh, fill in. Just what was this process like? The process has been... Uh, an upward spiral. <laughs> then nonlinear, and we're learning that our processes of nonlinear, iterative, community organizing, 
facilitated processes, um, they don't always mesh with the timelines and processes of, you know, development, which mm -hmm. by their nature kind of need to be linear. So yeah, hopefully uh, we're not, you know, driving Sandra and her teams completely <laughs> out of their minds because we keep being like, and now we're going to revisit it again because we just learned something new from this process, which is ever unfolding. So, um, you know, we started with one process, you know, that was about, you know, well, we want to bring our partners together into this and how do we envision a space that will meet all of our organizational needs. Um, and that led us to an initial vision, which was enough to get started. That was like our concept package. They would get, you know, some initial funding and uh, the, the schematics um, of the drawings. But then we, you know, um, felt confident enough in the fact that, okay, this is actually going to happen that we began more uh, deeper engagement with the neighborhood. Uh, we were pretty mindful of the fact that a lot of times like developers will start with engagement in order, you know, out of good intentions, mm -hmm. like let's find out what everyone needs and wants, get people really excited, but then they never materializes because right. it's actually super hard to raise all the financing and line all those pieces up. Um, and that burns people out from wanting to even engage in the development process. So we didn't start that until we felt pretty sure it was going to happen. But then once we began, we learned new things, right? From the uh, residents of the neighborhood needed and wanted. Um, we launched a disability justice and access advisory council. Um, again, once we felt like, okay, this is a real thing and learned even more through that. And so this is ongoing. Um, there are about four different kind of advisory bodies that are orbiting each other, overlapping, feeding insights into the process. And we're trying to kind of, uh, kind of weave all of that together with um, that original vision and the pieces of the plan that are already fixed. Mm -hmm. um, as more and more of those pieces kind of get fixed, like okay, now there's the walls have been framed. That's it. Now the flooring <laughs> has been laid. That's it. And then you know we just keep having to be told like this is yeah. So yeah. It, it, is, it is an adventure. We got the dance floor in there just in time, though. <laughs> <laughs> we did. We were like, there needs to be a sprung uh, uh, subfloor for dance classes to happen. Right. <laughs> of course. <Right. laughs> we were just about to pour the concrete. So we were lucky. <laughs> well, I, do, I think it would be great to maybe to hear even a little bit more about, so when you have that kind of a participatory process, and how it inter, you know, interrelates with the real estate development, kind of typical design, time frame and processes. You know, how have you had to flex or adjust? Um, and what's maybe been, been, you know, like the upside of this? You know, maybe there's some downside too, but like, you know, can others do this? Is this doable? <laughs> I think it's a model to make it doable. I mean, uh, like Jeanette uh, explained it perfectly. It's like you have this linear world of development that is you know, very schedule driven, especially once you get the contractors on board and, and, and budgets and costs start to come in. Um, but true in community engagement, people talk about it all the time. Right. But it's not a linear process and it takes time. That listening takes time. And like she said, we've had so many, uh, you know, just in the city of Detroit, press releases about projects that never happened. Uh, you know, to take that approach to wait and, you know, and to engage the public afterwards or the community afterwards is, you know, we have the money, this is real. It, it means a lot. I mean, and then for the community to have input on like, 
we, you know, after we got the first set of renderings going, it's like, well, the community had input on what the elevator tower addition color should be. And I was like, wow, I have never experienced a fact of, you know, of a community being a part of color selections. And like, let's make this more fitting in with the corridor and the arts, that buildings yeah. that are coming down the street and different things. So it really feels like it's a collective design effort, true collective design effort versus we collectively wanted to collect the beginning, and now we're just moving on with the project. Thank you, you know. So I really commend uh, Allied Media. I really commend uh, Detroit Disability Power. I mean, just like I said, things like yes, you know, the code minimum is three foot, you know, uh, three foot doors, but you know, with someone with a power wheelchair, that's brought to our attention. You know, we need the doors to be three foot clear. Mm -hmm. So they're lar larger than three foot doors. So it's like, it's been a lot of learning on my part, but it's seeing true community engagement, which I had not seen a lot of. I see it before yeah. things get started, but not during the process. Yeah. And maybe Dessa, from your perspective, as someone who's advocating for this, you know, just as, as part of your job, like your every day, what are the lessons that you hope other real estate developers and other architects and designers can take from a project like this? Oh, there's so many. And I, and the first thing I think about is how grateful I am to be in a process that is truly collaborative and iterative. Um, as Sandra has said, there are codes, and those codes are super important to making sure that people with a variety of disabilities can fully participate. But alone, they just don't cut it, mm -hmm. right? I can't tell you how many times uh, there has technically been an accessible entrance to a building, but as a wheelchair user, I have to go you know, three blocks out of my way to find an alleyway with no signs to find the ramp. Right. And so they're meeting the code, but the spirit of it isn't there. And what that tells me when I arrive is this place isn't for me. Mm -hmm. This place doesn't really care if I come or not. They're, they're not really interested in what I have to offer because um, they didn't make it possible for me to actually participate without being super grumpy by the time I got in the building. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, cumulatively over a lifetime, that has quite the impact. And so... Um, to be in a process where the, the code is not only met as it should be, which unfortunately, honestly, is not always the case anyway, mm -hmm. um, but to be listened to and say, how do you want to feel mm -hmm. in this space? Like, how do you want to show up in your fullness as opposed to having to leave part of who you are at the door because it's inconvenient in the design process or we didn't think of it or we don't know anybody like you, so we didn't prioritize it. Um, that all is something that people with disabilities are, are very used to experiencing, mm -hmm. but it's really detrimental to everyone. Right. So when we can't show up in our fullness, the space and the conversation suffers because we actually do have something to add. Um, and it also hurts us not to be able to fully participate. And so this kind of collaborative, uh, real intentional process to go above the bare minimum mm -hmm. is, uh, should be the model. Um, and it's, <laughs> I, I love the idea that people will look at it and say like, oh, this is possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. It takes longer. Maybe. Yes. There might be some other costs involved, but what you get out of it is so much better. Um, we're not there yet, but I think we could, at some point we'll be like, it was worth it. <laughs> you yeah. know, it was definitely worth it. And, and I think, uh, the, the kind of final piece on that is, uh, you know, there's this, there's this kind of ableist mindset that accommodating disabled people, um, and we're not all wheelchair users, right? Like right. there's a whole bunch of variety in our community that, that needs attention. But there's this kind of ableist dominant narrative about accommodating us is like a pain in the butt mm -hmm. or expensive 
or um, just for a handful of people. Right. That's really messed up thinking. And that's messed up thinking for a couple of reasons. One is that we built this whole society wrong the first time. Don't blame us that we're now asking you to fix it. Right. Right. Like if we would have built all the buildings accessibly the first time, it wouldn't be more expensive to retrofit. Right. Right. And so if we're not including the cost of the original development in the calculation for uh, what the development needs to be, we're just actually pinning some blame on the folks who need it to be better. Right. And that's just a philosophical switch that needs to happen. Right. And also, it's not just a few people. Right. Right. People with disabilities are the largest uh, marginalized group in the country. And we're from every single background. And so it's not like four people in wheelchairs that you're spending extra money to accommodate. It could be you tomorrow. Right. It could be your grandma. You know, it's a whole bunch of us. Right. Well, I think I think this idea, you know, part of what all three of you have, have really talked, you know, kind of hit on is this idea that there are these misconceptions that it somehow takes longer or whatever. And I mean, I think many of us could point to real estate development projects in Detroit that were not developed with this kind of participatory mindset that took longer and cost more money, right? And so the idea that somehow only community engagement or only I wouldn't even say accommodating, but considering the full range of participants is somehow going to do that is, I agree, it's it's not, it's it's very small-minded thinking. It's convenient thinking (laughs) for wanting to do things a certain way. I wonder maybe if, if, as we kind of start to wrap up our conversation, we could talk a little bit about unexpected either challenges or opportunities that you saw through the process. and, and anyone can kind of jump in. Well, I can talk about one, um, which again, it kind of is, it emerges from this iterative process and the, the challenging matchup of that with uh, development timelines. But we, um, you know, we're looking at this four story building that had at one point a freight elevator because it was originally designed to be a furniture warehouse, uh, showroom mm-hmm. warehouse. Is that right? Sometimes? I think it's a real mistake. Yeah. Uh, but no no functional uh, pass, no functional elevator at all, um, just a shaft. And so first we you know went through a lot of thinking about trying to um, put a new elevator in that existing shaft, um, you know, through conversations with Detroit Disability Power and understanding like the tenets of universal design, which is that like the front entrance, the main entrance, the one that everyone uses should be the accessible one, not a separate entrance in the back, right? And so it became really clear, okay, we're building a whole new shaft, uh, elevator tower, it's gonna be right at the front of the building. Uh, you know, elevator lead times are like the longest piece of the project. Uh, it's like the most expensive, the most heavily regulated particular piece of the project. And so we're moving right along. And then, um, so through a consultant that we have working with us on this Disability Justice Council, uh, they said, oh, you know, you should just have a conversation with this, uh, the director of this building in Berkeley, California, called the Ed Roberts Campus. It's like the most successful building in the country. And so we said, great. We had a phone call with him, and he told us lots of fascinating things about this building. Um, and the one thing that we really, uh, that really struck us was he was like, you know, of course you need elevator redundancy. And we were like, you mean more than what? <laughs> 
that because, you know, elevators will break, you know, you can have a backup generator, power failures, stuff like that. But just on the day to day, like the maintenance, it's going to break. And oh you know, someone's stuck on the floor or stuck down the first floor and they can't get to their office. We were like, of course, of course there should be two elevators. And we know because, you know, we do our conference, the Alameda conference at Wayne State. And without fail, you know, that ele- someone gets stuck in the elevator at Wayne State mm-hmm. because, you know, whatever. It, that's just a thing. Um, and so we were like, yeah, that, that doesn't work. And so then we uh, started asking, um, you know, is it too late? Can we have another one? Oh, well, that'll be an extra 300000 if you do it now, another half million if you do it later. So maybe. And then we're like, so then we're scrambling to figure out, okay, can we like fundraise a little bit more? Da, da, da. Um, and now we have to restart the permitting process. So that's just like a challenge that we're yeah. facing like at this very moment. So it's yeah. at the top of mind, you know, where it's like, um, you know, these opportunity, the opportunity is that we have these relationships, these like advisors helping us along the way and we're like learning these things. But then that challenge of, like we said, just slotting it in in the right moment of the process. Yeah, the trade-offs right. of the decision-making. What about you, Sandra Odessa? I mean, like I said, I, I, I commend Jeanette to be able to go get the money. I mean, just we have so many projects that we work on from a design standpoint that you feel like that are limited as far as mm-hmm. budget, right? Like, this is what we can do. Um, but she finds out the correct information, the correct pathway, and then gets the money to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that is a whole new mindset that as, as an architect, I had to say in Detroit, where we don't have the big budget projects, uh, that it's, it's refreshing to see. Uh, so, yeah, we... You know, it's shocking. We're like, wow, we're adding an elevator? Okay, all right. So, but uh, we're like, this is, I, I, it just blows my mind, really, because, you know, that she's able to get the funding to uh, keep pushing the boundary. Uh, mm-hmm. So we'll find a way to design it and get it in. We did a couple studies and looked at it, talked talked about it together, and then tried to fit that into the, the whole, how do you do it permitting-wise and construction-wise is what we're going through now. Um, so it's, it's just been you know, interesting to learn how to talk to, you know, the contractors to get that flex. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I just feel empowered in those conversations because of I, this client that is able to make it happen. It's right. like, it's just, it's just draw dropping to me. It's just like, I don't know if she knows it, but this is amazing. Um, but yeah, it's just, uh, I mean, like I said, a lot of things that I just, I'm not used to seeing that um, things that the community wants, things that tenants want, you know, are are thought about totally in the design right. from, uh, you know, to, from shared spaces to their own space uh, mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, um, to feeling of each of the spaces in between each of the suites. So um, it is, it's just refreshing as a designer to work with a client that uh, actually puts, you know, uh, force behind the mission. What about you, Dessa? Well, I the thing I'm thinking about is just how much our values are being displayed in not only the process, but the final product. Mm-hmm. And so in addition to values around universal design and community engagement, I think there's a real um, intentionality about creating a space that is enjoyable to be in, mm-hmm. where connections can be made, where we can have fun. And all of us are social justice organizations, so we have a lifetime of work ahead of us that is really hard and can be really demoralizing at times. But I think that uh, Alley Media Projects and the, the folks that are at the table designing this understand that we have to find joy uh, in our everyday um, 
connections with people and with our work if we're going to sustain it for the long haul. So the fact that, you know, there's going to be food on the first floor, the fact that there's space for gatherings, that there's a rooftop area where we can have a beautiful view and enjoy fresh air and that there's going to be green space and a place for prayer and meditation. These are all things that help us be Mm -hmm. well-rounded and are part of our values as uh, change makers and in trying to model that social justice work doesn't just have to be a slog. Right. You know, it's hard and it's worth it, but like we can also be good to ourselves in the process. And that I'm just excited to work in that environment because uh, I know it's going to enhance my work and, and, and my own personal well-being at the same time. And, and you have standards out there. You have like lead uh, building standing wellness uh, uh, building standards as well. But all of that's happening in this process project without that, you know, certification. But all of those key factors that are in each of those uh, you know, design, uh, you know, standard systems that we use are incorporated in this building. Right. Uh, it's just like you, we're thinking about everything. I mean, and and we also had to think about, you know, uh, post-pandemic, how, you know, a design way. So it, it also took it to the next level as well. You know, uh, uh, like I said, things like, you know, you know, biking to work and, you know, even charging stations for, uh, you know, vehicles, everything has been thought about from a sustainable and inclusive design aspect in this project. It's just been amazing. And just, and what do you think has made that difference given that, you know, all of these rubrics and standards and opportunities already exist, um, you know, just from your experience working on all these projects, Sandra, what, what has brought that all together in this project versus in some other projects where it has I, I definitely think it's the, you know, the, the uh, kind of ethos of allied media. Because uh, we never talked about, you know, I mean, Jeanette knows that I'm a lead, a lead credit professional, but we never said, oh, we need to make this a lead building. Right. She was just like, <laughs> we just need to make this a building where everybody feels welcome. It, you know, it, it is, you know, universal accessibility design is the focus. Uh, you know, that, you know, once everybody came on board and the tenants got in, it's like, this is the focus of the project. You have all of these nonprofits that are mission driven and, you know, we want a place that everybody feels home. We, we talked about a resumercial feel to the interior mm-hmm. design of the building. Uh, it's just everything that they wanted in their ethos just happened to align with these standards that we use in the right. industry. But that's the way that they are. And it t- and I hope they, you know, like, you know, they're getting the space that they want to have to be able to work and live. Because you, you always feel like you're living at work, right? Right. But, <laughs> but, but so I'm not living here, but to work in that they feel comfortable in it. And, to, and, and, and just lighten to hear them say, too, to feel empowered to, to continue to do this work. Well, maybe we'll have you close us out, Jeanette. And just if you, as you think about, given how much uh, AMP's values have been infused in the, in the building and in the process, What's, you know, one impact that you hope the building will have, but maybe also just a lesson to others? Like if some people are going to learn something from this process, what do you hope that they learn? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting question because this, like Sandra said, like it, it's unique and it's coming together in a unique way because it's development, but it's also nonprofit and so philanthropy actually has a huge role to play and CDFIs have a huge role to play and so there's just like a lot of what we're making possible. Um, I understand like a typical a development unfolding in a typical market way mm-hmm. is not going to be able to do if you have to balance everything that you invest in it with the like the return you know from like whether that's having your tenants pay you know basically pay for the improvements through rent right and so we're trying to you know I think um, the expectation 
our hope is this building will be a model, but not then that like every building will be this, but that every development could look at it and take a piece of like, well, how we want to be able to do this in our development and like, how did, so how did you do that? And then, you know, little by little, but um, yeah, I think just like showing a whole range of what might be possible. Yeah. Um, that then people can can begin to apply in the way that they do community engagement and you know um, accessibility and yeah thoughtfulness of the design of space. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much to all three of you for joining us here today and for helping to share both the, the lessons and the process behind the Love Building. And I'm I can't wait to walk into it and help celebrate it when it's finally ready. Thank you. This has been the Detroit City of Design podcast. If you like what you just heard, please share this episode on social media, via email, or by any other means. For more information on DesignCore Detroit, visit designcore.org or search the handle at designcore.det. That's design, C-O-R-E-D-E-T. Keep up with the show by subscribing for free in your favorite podcast app. Just search Detroit City of Design. And we hope you will join us in Detroit for Detroit Month of Design this September. The Detroit City of Design podcast is produced by Jessica Maloof of Design Core Detroit and edited by Robin Kinney of Motor City Woman Studios. Music by Caleb Waterman, courtesy of Assemble Sound. This podcast is a product of Design Core Detroit, a part of the College for Creative Studies in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm.